How are we doing today, my lovely listeners? My name is Brenna, the host of Soul Things Podcast. And on my show, we talk about hard spaces that we go through, particularly as young adults and in our 20s. And this topic that we are tackling today is probably one of the hardest spaces that we could step into, and that's suicide. And so I've been trying to get Junior on the show for a minute now to share some of his story. So it is an honor and a privilege to have you on the show, Junior. Hi, Verna. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, before I sort of step into this topic, I can honestly say that everyone listening has directly been impacted by this topic in some way, shape, or form, whether it's yourself or somebody you know or care or a loved one who has attempted or thought about or even gone through with it. So we recognize and acknowledge the heaviness of this topic. And I think I wanted to start off by just kind of sharing some stats about how this is really impacting our country and people uh, in general, because suicide, according to the CDC, is one of the leading causes of death in our country. And especially since 2020, numbers have gone up pretty significantly just with the isolation and with COVID and all of the mental health stress that has been going on. And they were saying that suicide is one of the leading causes of death, like I said, in the United States with over 45,000 deaths in 2020s, particularly. And to put that into perspective, that's about one death every 11 minutes. And the number of people who think or attempt suicide is even higher. So it's not even people who are actually going through with it, but just to get to that mental state is an estimated 12.2 million American adults who are seriously thinking about it. And out of that number, 3.2 million plan their attempts to suicide. And from that number, 1.2 actually attempt suicide. So clearly, this is impacting a huge amount of people. And so we just want to take some time to talk about this today, put um, some scripture onto this, kind of tackle it through the lens of scripture and what does that look like and hear your story, Junior. Um, so I kind of want to start off this conversation with giving you the space to talk about when you started to notice a mental health struggle in your own life and kind of some of those signs that lead to suicidal ideation. Yeah, uh, it's a good place to start. I would say, um, I didn't really start to recognize, uh, a mental health struggle or see at least the effects of it until I was in senior year of high school. Uh, what had happened was my dad and I, we had this really big fight about, um, a career path. Um, essentially he wanted me to be, you know, very stereotypical, but to be like an engineer, a doctor, a lawyer, some kind. And, um, God had other plans for me. Um, God had called me into vocational ministry and, um, it was a really big burden on my heart. And when I told my dad about it, um, man, it was rough. It was really difficult. My dad, had a hard time accepting it and just blew up, um, said and did a lot of really terrible things and, um, you know, really traumatizing things. And it, it made me really anxious. Like every day coming back home from school, I didn't know what was going to come next. And when you couple that with like depression, because the situation in general, and also feeling like, you know, your whole world's flipping upside down. Um, I was in a really dark place and it wasn't until the end of senior year that I really recognized, like, I don't think that I'm like mentally all and emotionally all stable. Um, my dad actually had come to reversing how he felt and supported me and, uh, was going to be at peace with 
letting me walk down the path of vocational ministry. But everything on the inside, internally, I felt like was still coming apart. And so um, my four years of college were riddled with a lot of like unresolved anxiety and depression that I just didn't know why it existed and I didn't know how to deal with it. So that's how, that's where my story began. Yeah. And so, so Junior and I actually became uh, friends that freshman year of college. We both ended up going to Moody together. We, Moody has this thing where you have brosis floors. So there was a guy floor and a girl floor that would like, you know, eat together and do things together and stuff like that. So we were able to connect pretty early on. And I think, you know, I got to hear some of Junior's struggle and see it up close um, from an early stage. And I, and I clearly remember moments of you sharing some of that stuff. Um, but yeah, so can you sort of walk us through that time in college then of, you know, coming out of that environment? And then once you sort of realized, oh, wow, I'm not mentally stable, what was kind of the next step once you hit that realization? Did you get help? Were you, what did your struggle look like from that moment? Yeah. Um, Man, uh, I wish I could say I got help right away. <laughs> but you know, when you're somebody who's, um, or if you even if you know people who are going through some kind of like really tough mental health struggle with anxiety or depression, and it's like, it, it bedrids them, it almost like incapacitates them, right? Like these are people who, like, like me, um, had trouble just doing everyday things like basic um, taking care of yourself kinds of things, you know? So, um, it's a, it's a stereotype that we see in like media a lot, but like getting, it's hard to get out of bed or things like that. I think people who are depressed, like when they see that they really know what that means, you know? And so I bring that up because I had a hard time reaching out for help. I had a hard time understanding if I even deserved help, if that makes Mm, sense. Yeah. I felt like I didn't, um, I didn't know what to do and I didn't know if I deserved to get help. I felt like I just needed to pick myself up and figure it out. And that has a whole like tie into like my upbringing like as a child and my household and all that too. But yeah, yeah. So um, I didn't start getting help until it wasn't my sophomore year. Um, a really good friend of mine at the time basically just kept pushing into me. Maybe you should consider getting professional help and at the time, um, and I think it also is being, being an Asian American, um, my parents are first generation immigrants. So they, they weren't born here. Um, there's so many stipulations with like medicine, especially psychological medicine. And so like I had no idea like what it would mean to get a therapist or to, to see a counselor. I thought that that meant that any doctor who saw you for psychological needs were going to like pill you up. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> yeah. that's just like, that's, that's just the stereotype that you're raised with in an Asian yeah. home. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, fast forward with junior years when, um, I started to consider, um, seeing a counselor. And at the end of junior years, my first time seeing, um, a counselor. But even then at that time, I, I was so hesitant and, I was still like gaining insight on what was going on. I couldn't really figure it all out, you know, but that's when it started. Yeah. I feel like there's moments when you're in something that it's so easy to question. Like, is this in my head? What's going on? Is this really serious? You can start to get in your head so much because you're the one experiencing it. 
and you're trying to like tell people about it and you're like, I don't know, like there's all these sort of questions and hesitancies. I, I've um, experienced depression in my own life too. And I can sort of relate. It was my, it was actually my junior year in college too. I'd moved down to North Carolina and I think there's this struggle of like, I don't even like, do I need help? Do it? You know, it's like hard to sort of get to that space sometimes because sometimes you're like, yeah, like, do I need medicine? Is this, you know, because sometimes I feel like it's so different. Like if you um, have a physical ailment, it's pretty black and white. Okay. I need to go to the doctor. But I think sometimes there's this like internal struggle. So I don't know if you ever face something like that. I know you mentioned your family and maybe some stigma with medicine or going to a therapist, but was there ever some internal struggle of, I don't know, am I, what's going on? You know, is this really as serious that I actually need help? You know, what did that, can you walk us through that internal struggle a little bit? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, if you, anyone who knows me knows I'm like a thinker, right? So, uh, so uh, what happens when I'm in the midst of something is I immediately retreat to like a cave and it's like a horrible place for people like me to be in. Um, if any of you like know the Enneagram or whatever, I'm a four wing five, right? So um, I remember when I typed a four wing five, there was a um, a warning saying that people like me can be highly depressive and get lost in their thoughts because um, fours are really introspective fives question everything and they want to understand things and when you put those two together with someone who's depressed um man it was so hard for me to get out of that headspace of constantly trying to figure out the reason for everything that was going on and all that it kept pointing to was at least in my mind which was clouded you know but it was me the only thing that my brain kept concluding that was wrong was me. Something, Ugh. the thing that was wrong was me. Yeah. yeah. It's like you're taking on this identity of like, you are what's happening to you or you no, exactly. are your problems, yeah. which is very real. Can you sort of walk us through? So now you, you have a friend who's speaking into you, get, you go to a counselor. Um, what did that process look like for you when you started going to therapy? Did you notice change starting to happen? Did you get worse? you get better what did that look like uh so i um at moody they offered uh counseling and uh, i saw a uh she was practicing under the counselor i think she was like interning and um i noticed that it wasn't a lot like what you saw in movies you know or media um it wasn't like you know she's got a clipboard and you're sitting on a couch and your feet are kicked up and you're just like talking to her about your life or how you feel but um she had asked me questions about like my support and um, things that I didn't think that I didn't even consider um, were things that I needed at the time. Like she asked me about who my friends were and if I had talked to other people about this before. And she encouraged me to maybe reach out to people who are close to me, like my friends and family. And uh, that made a really big difference, you know. But um, unfortunately, I only saw her twice. And I only saw her twice because. Um, I had kind of, like I said, retreated back to my cave after seeing her and I got worse, but not because of her, because of me, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, that's real. And I think um, that's important for people to hear too, is like sometimes when we think of healing and mental health stuff, we want to just see this clear line of like, all right, I'm getting help. It's going to be upper projection, but it's honestly like a roller coaster. It's like up, down, every which way. But so continuing your story then, can you sort of walk us through? So you retreated you weren't going to counseling anymore. Um, 
what happened to your mental state after that? Yeah. So um, following this journey, right? Because, you know, your mental health journey is like coinciding with your everyday life. So being a student and there's finals and and then also you might have like family, uh, external family issues that happen. So like your dad gets sick or uh, you might lose a friend or something, you know, so all these like social um, dynamics that take place during your mental health journey, like affect you. And so for me, um, what had happened was I had just broken up with my girlfriend of about three or four years. And then about um, maybe four or five months later, I had met this new girl who I had immediately just kind of like put all of my hope and my trust in, you know, um, and in a really like codependent sense, like I, I just saw like all of my value in how this person treated me. And uh, that's a whole nother story. But basically it was kind of like, it was like, I, I thought that I was taking steps forward because I was feeling better, but I was actually falling behind because all it was doing was um, like putting a bandaid on the wound, you know, and then also convincing myself that that was what I needed. So, yeah. So you found yourself sort of clinging to these other things for hope. Yeah. And how did that leave you? You know? <laughs> yeah. Um, it, at first it was, um, I thought that, like I said, it, I thought that it was everything, right? I thought it was everything that I needed. Here was somebody who um, loved me and listened to me and was there for me. But um, there was like all these warning signs like that I needed to turn the other way. Um Mostly because, you know, and not to um, like cast any judgment on her, but um, she's her own person too. And she had just gotten out of a really bad relationship and she wasn't even sure if she wanted to patch things up with her ex-boyfriend at the time. And so that was like a great deal of anxiety for her and for me, you know. And so uh, right away, it was like um, I was in love with the idea of like wanting her to be everything that I needed. and obviously like those warning signs that I ignored, it ended up being really bad for me and biting me back in the butt like later in our relationship. Yeah. So like piling on your mental health struggles just in general with this like relationship struggle, I'm sure that exacerbated a lot of your depression and yeah. anxieties. And where did that sort of lead you to? Can you sort of walk us through the next part of your story? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and and again, I'm not a I'm not a professional, right? I'm just a, an everyday human being. But um, this that girl that I had um I had met, I I knew that she had struggled with a lot of things herself. And I think one thing that she had struggled with was um, she genuinely knew that she um, man, it's so hard to like it's hard to spit out because I don't want to like judge her, you know. Yeah, but yeah. I think she was struggling with like a lot of narcissism. And she recognized it about herself. And I know that she didn't want to be that way. And so um, what had happened was uh, I was kind of like facing like emotional abuse at the same time in that past relationship. And someone like me, when you couple that, where like I'm blaming myself constantly and um, I'm like needy and I'm like clingy and I'm like putting all my hope in her and I'm anxious all the time. Um, it was just a terrible place to be. And um exacerbated like even falls short it was kind of like i was like crippling like it was like a downward spiral just like never ending like black hole until like i hit rock bottom 
Um, cause what had happened was, uh, she ended up, uh, wanting to patch things up with her ex-boyfriend. And, uh, even though at that time she and I were like exclusive already, she ended up, uh, like, you know, cheating on me with him. And it, it had just like turned my whole world like upside down. And in a sense, like, you know, back then, um, her reasons for cheating, like she, on the one hand, acknowledged that she was wrong, but on the other hand, struggling with wanting to blame me, you know, because I was this, I was somebody who was just like an emotional cripple. And so I look back and sometimes I'm like, you know what? Like, this is totally wrong, but it's like, I don't blame her for wanting to not be with me. You know, like, I, I totally understand that. Now, obviously there is a more healthy way to deal with like breaking up with me or for me to walk away. But, um, looking back, I, I understand, you know? So you go through this breakup, you're emotionally like, first of all, you're like emotionally crippled, like you're saying, and then you just go through this heart wrenching thing. Like, and you're dealing with all this mental health stuff. It's just like things are just piling on you at this yeah. point. And, and you're still in college at this point, right? You're still, yeah. yeah. So you're still doing school. You're doing all these things. Yeah. Like, worst time to be a student. Just Yeah, honestly. And then my, I forgot to mention too, my, my grandmother, who I was really close to, uh, at the end of my sophomore year, she passed away. And uh, that really, really just took a toll on me. It, yeah. She was like my... She was always my last line of defense for support. And um, so when I lost her, I felt like at the end of the day, there really wasn't anyone there for me anymore, you know? Um, yeah. yeah. So it was tough. It was a really hard time. So you're also feeling alone, like you're grieving, you're alone, just all these things. What did that drive you to? Can you walk us through? I mean, this whole podcast is about like suicide and stuff. Is that were all these things what sort of drove you, drove you to that, or yeah, you know what? Can you sort of walk us through that? Yeah, so um, it's it's hard to get into um, like all of it without talking too much. So I'll try to make it brief. Okay, I promise. <laughs> um, all of this wasn't actually what really led me to suicide. I um. So even though I was like diagnosed with by the counseling that, you know, I was dealing with a lot of like anxiety disorder and um, depression, I didn't know this, but what was really going on was I had PTSD from my childhood. Yeah. So, um, and the reason that I, I learned that was because um, one, one counselor that I did see, and this was a Christian, as a Christian counselor, uh, asked me about like, what do I think about? when like stressful situations happen or things like that and it that's when it all clicked like everything came together and i understood like what was actually going on with me um so way back when i was a kid uh my parents um so i'm the youngest of four right and my my parents used to i would say they used to deal really harshly with my oldest sister she's nine years older than me so this started happening when i was um five, six, seven years old. She was, uh, so 14, 15 and 16. And, uh, she had started dating. She was in high school and, um, my dad became physically abusive, uh, with her and, um, in an Asian household, especially like for Hmong people like me, it, it's not uncommon to line the kids up and make them watch, um, make them watch as like my dad would beat, uh, my oldest sister as a form of like shame and humiliation and like showing us that this is how I don't want you to be. Now, um, obviously discipline is one thing, right? Like, um, 
like spanking your kids or whatever. Like I'm actually totally for like spanking your kids when they're like really out of line, you know, but um, my sister is 14, 15, 16 years old and she's being like punched and kicked and she's being stomped on and she's even fallen like in and out of consciousness, like from time to time and how bad, badly she was beaten. And as a child, you know, five, six, seven years old, the only concepts that I could understand at that time was like love and, and disappointment. And so I, what that taught me as a kid was like, if I'm not good enough, I won't be loved. Like I won't have affection. And, um, man, I remember just, and it's this house too, right? Um, I remember just pacing back and forth up this hallway behind me. So anxious because I didn't understand why my sister was being beaten. Like just pacing back and forth, so antsy, hands like clammy like this. My sister's crying, my mom's crying, my dad's screaming at her. And um, every like, you know, traumatic or like highly like emotionally intense moment after that in my life, I would experience flashbacks. And the kinds that like bleed into your memory where you're feeling the feelings of, of that traumatic event and experiencing them in real time. And I didn't know that that was PTSD. And so all, all my life. And when my girlfriend cheated on me for the, uh, for that first time that I mentioned, all I could think about and see myself was, was as that scared little kid again. And it was like, um, it was an overwhelming, like infiltrating kind of like really, really oppressive thoughts of like, you can't get out, you know, and you're stuck and you're still like this, this product of like this past you and you're still that, that kid in the end. And um, so not only was I, you know, experiencing anxiety and depression, but I feel like that was just like the after like the after effects of being riddled with flashbacks and being riddled with like these pervasive memories, just bogging into my mind. When I told, told the counselor that um, they said, you know, basically, yeah, junior, you, um, everything you're telling me, like it's starting to make sense, you know, why you interpret your whole life through the lens of like, you've got to be good enough. And like why your whole life is just like governed by fear you know, like fear that if you don't do well, you won't receive love and um, why you're such a people pleaser and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the list just goes on and on and on. But yeah. Wow. So you, you're like, I've heard with trauma, especially too, that you're, it can be stored in your body. So like when things happen to you, like breakups, loss of a loved one, all of these things, it's like, it can, like you're saying it can trigger these almost like physical responses to like the trauma. So I don't know if you ever experienced anything like that of like, this is so gut wrenching what I'm experiencing, but then it's like exacerbated, like you're saying from this PTSD that you're going through. Did you ever feel like these almost like a physical response? Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. So for me, um, and it sucks because you can't, I can't like pinpoint it for you. Right. But I want you to imagine like right where your rib cage separates, like right in the middle, there's like with from within, like just a bunch of needles. That's what it feels like. Just like broken pieces of glass that are like infinitely small. And it starts there and 
when you breathe, when you move, you can't like get rid of it. And then um, what happens is like when you try to calm yourself down, or I should say when I, when I try to calm myself down, I could feel it like slowly dissipate into like my limbs. It, it literally felt like glass just crawling through my veins until I could calm down. And when I would calm down, it'd be like, okay, well, that was like, you know, that was a storm, you know? And then going back to what I was saying, imagine being a student during this time and this is happening. Like you've got homework to do still and you've got like an exam to study for and biggest regret, just not taking a break from school. <laughs> yeah. I junior. Wow. So it is, so is your PTSD, what sort of drove you to like, yeah, like, like, like to this point where it's like, I've heard about when I was reading about suicide and trying to understand it on a deeper level, they were saying that people don't want to take their life. They want to escape the pain. Like yeah. they, they want to release from the pain. So did you reach a mental state where you're like, I just need a release from all of this um, internal glass like you're talking about that's just piercing yeah. through me yeah no uh you've hit it hit it right on the nail um so during that those first two years of college um when i was just really riddled with anxiety and depression um i wanted out from the pain and i hadn't um planned any suicides or thought about suicide seriously but i really did feel like the only option out was to die and it wasn't until um, my junior or senior year where I um, was um, dating uh, dating my previous girlfriend, um, the one that I put all my hope in. She um, she kind of like like the way that she treated me would cause those kind of like memories to really flood in and make me feel like I was that kid again that I just needed to make people happy and that maybe I'd be loved. You know, uh, what had happened was uh, after cheating on me, so. She cheated on me twice, but this is like a long, that's like a whole other story, but they were a year apart. So in my senior year, when she cheated again, um, when I, when you layered that with what I went through with the kid as a kid, and then when I thought about all the feelings that I felt the previous year, um, I was so like in my own world, in my own mind. And I'm, I'm almost definitely sure she could even attest to it. Like it was hard to talk to me because like I was so lost in my mind thinking that, um, all that I knew was pain and all that I knew was the trauma and I just wanted out. And um, so when I got to that point, if I could like talk about that a little more, um, I was experiencing like serious mania, not mania of like anger or bitterness or even like, like, like bog it down, like sadness. I just felt like I needed to run. Like I needed to escape. And so um, what had happened was I was, um, we were, my family were visiting fam, we're visiting some of our extended family in Minnesota. And uh, it was a funeral that we were in town for. And um, it wasn't somebody that I knew and it wasn't anyone who I was close to, but it was like a distant relative. And uh, we were staying at this hotel and um, it was during when we were staying at this hotel that um, she had told me that, that, you know, she was, she was cheating on me and, basically she was willing to like finally cut things off with her ex and try to work things out with me. And so um, she said that she would go and talk to him for a little bit to kind of like, you know, 
like cut it off with him. And then um, she'd call me back. And what happened was um, it was like 4 a.m. and she didn't call me back. And at that time, at that point, I was already like extremely anxious, you know. Um, when she finally answered the phone, um, she just bombarded me with like um, things like, who would want to stay with you because you're like this, you know. And um, this is the reason why I did what I did, et cetera. And um, at that point, um, coupled with all the anxiety of just waiting for her to call me back, you know, and then like, again, remembering the kind of person that I am, just lost in my mind, reliving all of my childhood trauma experiences that literally like when we talk about flashbacks as people with PTSD and like, you know, movies portray like a Vietnam War veteran, like he's just like losing his mind. Okay. Um, Although sometimes that's comical, um, man, like I really was just reliving the kid in the hallway, you know, it felt like that. And to make it like the imagery even stronger, I just paced back and forth that hotel hallway for hours, just like the kid, like in my home hallway, you know, it was like one for one, like, you know, what ended up happening was, um, the hung up the call um and i felt like i just needed to escape like i needed to go and um what happened was i had i had like smashed my head through the hotel wall in the stairwell and i had some cuts and some bruises and some bleeding and um when i went uh out to the car to go and um like you know try to take my own life a hotel employee walked out <laughs> And uh, he wasn't concerned about my well-being per se, but he needed to take my credit card to pay for the damages for the wall. Okay. Oh my gosh. So here I'm in my car, right? And I'm trying to figure out where to go. And uh, this hotel employee, he's only like 20 years old, right? He comes out and he's like super nervous. And he's like, hey, uh, you know, uh, can I have your, you know, your credit card? just to put on file and i already knew what it was for i didn't you know i didn't like feel any ill will toward him at all you yeah, know i was like he's yeah. just doing his job you know right. what i mean so give him the card and then i tell him what room i'm staying in and then then i think he realizes like the severity of the situation you know and he just says hey um are you okay you know like what's going on and i just said to him like i'm just in a lot of pain and my whole life has been this like horrible painful like storm and i feel like i just can't get out he asked me what happened and i said well i mean what just happened recently was my girlfriend's cheating on me again and um in a really comical way he just says man you know what i just realized i need to stop cheating on my girlfriend because oh i'm putting gosh. a lot of people i'm putting a lot of people through pain you know oh my gosh and i just looked at him like 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 brother like what are you doing you know anyway he says if you know you know uh, as long as you're gonna be all right you know i mean like you know little part ways and so i drove to this bridge um it's called wakota bridge it's up um i think it's on 275 i don't remember the highway actually but the name of the bridge is wakota bridge it's in minnesota in woodbury i think and um or cottage grove sorry cottage grove minnesota and um parked by a car right on the side of the road and the only thing that was running through my mind was like, if I didn't want to be this, that little kid for the rest of my life, like I had to die, you know? And, um, 
the mania was so like real. Like I literally felt like I couldn't get out of my headspace, you know? Yeah, yeah. And at that point, like the voice of reason, the voice of reason had turned to saying like, yeah, like, you know, like you need to take your life because you're always going to be stuck, scared, anxious, depressed, and you're always going to be that kid for the rest of your life. And there's nothing that you can do about it. You can't change because the problem is you, you know? And um, it was a really, really, really painful time, you know, but um, I think if you want, I could just like say what happened because I'm sure like people are gonna be like, okay, well, what, what happened? You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, go go for it. Yeah. So uh, what had happened was um, I'd called um, three people who I considered like closest to me, right? So the first person I called was um, Kyle, Kyle Koo. So if you're listening, Kyle, this is for you. Um, he lives in Michigan. We grew up together and he has been a friend there for me through and through. And um, I told him that I was going to kill myself and he was really worried and um, hung up. I hung up the phone on him. Then I called my friend Daniel and uh, Daniel, I told him that what was going on to you. And he actually lives in Minnesota. So he was really worried. He's like, where are you, dude? Where are you? I can like pick you up right now. We can talk it through, but hung up the phone on him. And then the last person who I was like dreading to call, I was calling my only brother, my big brother. And, um, I called him. I woke him up and he's at, in Michigan still. And, um, he's confused because he just woke up and he's wondering what's going on. He's asking me, Hey, where are you? Like, are you safe? You know, like, don't worry about it. You know, we can talk about it when you get home, you know, like, you don't have to. Um, and so I lied to him. He's the only one that I lied to. I lied to him and told him like, yeah, I'm fine. You know, I'm safe and I'll go home, you know, uh, because I couldn't bring myself to tell him that I was going to kill myself. And um, coincidentally, a cop pulls up behind me, sirens on, and I see him in the, the rearview mirror. And um, it's because I'm parked on the side of a bridge, which I'm pretty sure is like a spot for you know, people who are trying to kill themselves. And secondly, it was in a construction zone too. So I'm sure he thought that something was wrong. You know, he just wanted to check on me. So um, he comes, he comes in and uh, he comes to the side of the door and he just asks me for ID registration. It's a rental car. I give him my ID, talk to him for a little bit. And he thinks that I'm like high or something. Right. And so he like does the whole test and I'm just saying for cops who are listening, that test, it's really hard to do when you're sober. Like, like the following the finger with the eyes thing. Like, it's got like it's that's got to go. It's got to change. Like the like the walking test, I'm totally for it. But the eye thing, like, yeah, like I don't I don't know about that. That that was hard to do sober, you know. Well, what happens is, um, what happens is the cop he can't find anything wrong, and so he asked me what's going on. Like, why am I parked on the side of the road? And I told him, and I lied to him. I said. Um, I'm going through a lot right now. I just needed some time to breathe. Okay. Cause I don't feel like I'm safe driving, which was true. You know, it was a half truth. And so he said, okay, you know, how about you just, um, there's a gas station about a mile up the road. Just go over there, pull over there. I'll follow you so that you're safe, you know? And, uh, what had happened was I, um, resolved that I was going to kill myself right there. So I waited for him to get back to his car. And then um, there was literally like probably about 10 or 15 seconds of me just staring at the sunrise, like over the Mississippi River. And um, 
just wondering, like, was this really going to be the end, you know? And um, knowing that I don't think that it was going to end, like, everything that I was going through. Like, I wouldn't say it was, like, second-guessing my decision, but it was more like I knew that death wasn't going to solve my problem. But it just seemed like a better solution than what I was going through, you know? And so um, I literally crawl over to the passenger seat. I push the door open and I jump the bridge. And when I jump the bridge, I'm hanging on to the other side of the railing at that point. And the cop, he, he probably had a feeling that that was going to happen. Um, so he came and he was holding me through the, the there's like gates. You know, I don't know what the word is, but it's like a gate kind of thing. And um, he's holding me through the railing like that. And I'm just dangling, you know, just dangling. And he's like pleading with me to help him. He's just pleading, like, like, please, like, don't do this, you know, like, help me, like, get back up here, you know. And so he's just like so worried and concerned. His face is like getting super red because I'm sure I'm really heavy, you know, I'm like 180 pounds, you know what I mean? Like, and uh, what happens is I see the desperation in his face. And I felt bad for him. I felt like this guy doesn't deserve it. And so I ask him, what's his name? And he tells me his name. And I ask him if he has a family at home. And he says he's got a wife and two kids. And at that point, I was like, am I really going to traumatize this guy for the rest of his life? And it's so annoying because it's like, man, like I was going through so much, but what saved me was I, I considered this guy, like this stranger that I didn't know. I, I just considered how he might have felt, you know? And it's like kind of like that people pleaser in me, like maybe that's what ended up helping me, you know what I mean? So he tells me um, he's got two kids. And so I swing my feet back on the ledge, but doing so, I lost my sandals, which is hilarious. Like, and the, the funny thing too is they weren't my sandals. They were my cousin's sandals. I stole them from the hotel room because I couldn't find my shoes. And so, um, like, oh, goodbye to his flip flops. Like, they're just gone. They're just like in the Mississippi forever. And so I'm on the other, I'm standing on the ledge now so he can rest. But at this point, Another a state trooper had shown up to give back up and um, they're holding my arms because they're scared that I'm still going to jump, you know, and because um, I haven't like talked to them. I haven't said anything, you know, and I'm just crying and like uh, eventually they handcuffed me to the railing because they realized that's a good sol- solution, right? I can't go if my hands are cuffed. And then all these other cops show up. There's like probably like 10 of them there now. And they're wondering like what to do. You know, they're talking like, do we need like a safety harness? Like, how are we going to pull them out? You know, and like, because they're scared that I'm going to jump if they uncuff me. And so it's hilarious. They're talking amongst themselves. And then they look at me and they're like, if we uncuff you, you're going to jump. <laughs> and I'm like, um, no, nah, I won't jump. It's fine. You know. So they uncuff me and then they pull me over and then uh, I get into this ambulance and then they, um, the EMTs talk to me about what's going on and um, they're, they are like, what's, you know, what's going on? And I'm just like, well, I feel like I just lost everything, you know? 
and they're like, well, it gets better, you know, like it's okay. Like it's going to get better. It's fine. And what I said to them, I actually had never felt more depressed until after I tried to kill myself because I felt like I couldn't kill myself anymore. And I felt like it was, um, it was just the way that my life had to be that I had to deal with all this and I couldn't escape it. And so all I said to the MT was like, you know, um, even if it doesn't get better, like I'm just stuck. And they didn't know, they didn't know what to say to me. And, um, they, they took me to the, to the hospital and that's when my whole family was notified that I was safe and okay. And they told me where I was. And, then I had a grueling whole day of family members one by one coming to see me and me apologizing to them for trying to kill myself. And it was just so depressing. And by the end of the night, I was rock bottom, just rock bottom. Absolutely. Just like I had no idea how to feel, you know, yeah. because I, I genuinely feel sorry to the people that I hurt to try because I try to take my own life, but I mm-hmm. also don't want to be here. Yeah. And, it wasn't until I called the, uh, an old friend of mine. I called her up. She lives in town. Again, her phone number, I happened to just memorize. And uh, her and her boyfriend came to the hospital. And uh, she given me a Bible and a little bookmark. And she said, hey, I bookmarked um, a psalm that I wanted you to read. And um, it was bookmarked at Psalm 88. I could see it at the the page and i was very familiar with psalm 88 right psalm 88 for those of us who might not be familiar with it is considered like the darkest psalm in all of the bible because it's the only psalm that doesn't end with a happy ending it's the last verse if and you know this is just me paraphrasing it is like all my friends are darkness or something like that it's like it's like this like really just sad terrible hopeless despairing psalm and um I just kind of like rolled my eyes, like, of course, right? Like, it's this psalm. And she says, no, no, it's not. It's actually 86. I want you to read Psalm 86. And so I was like, oh, okay. So she leaves with her boyfriend. And um, I am reading Psalm 86 that night. And there's this verse at the end of Psalm 86. If I could actually just pull it, because I, I actually yeah. want to read it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I have it here. It says... Uh, At the end, in verse uh, 17, the last verse, it says, Show me a sign of your goodness. My enemies will see and be put to shame because you, Lord, have helped me and you comforted me. And uh, that first line, like, show me a sign of your goodness, just became like the prayer like that I held on to that night. And it gave me like literally like, like a seed of hope, you know? <laughs> And that next day, I would say, was the start of like, like the start of me getting healthy that next day, that morning, uh, morning after. Yeah. Wow, Junior. Um, even just hearing you walk us through this, this story of your life, um, I see like even before you mentioned the Psalms, I was thinking of some of the prayers that David was saying in his Psalms and just how raw and real they are. 
and how there are Psalms, like you're saying, that are just not wrapped up in a nice little bow of, but you're still good, God, or I trust you. But like, there's this tension of like, like you're saying, is my life going to be like this for the rest of my life? Like, am I going to be miserable? And I think people listening who might be struggling with where you were at can be in a headspace like that right now of, oh, it's either kill myself and escape this pain or I suffer the rest of my life. And I think you were in that space, but now you're saying from that day on, can you sort of share that healing process and how did your perspective shift from this hopelessness of my life will always, I will be stuck. I will be trapped in this pain to, to an abundant life that is, doesn't feel like a trap. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, what had happened was right after that, um, that following day I was discharged to go home and instructed to see a counselor at home in Michigan. Cause you know, we're out of state, so they didn't want to keep me. Um, they felt bad for my family, you know? So we go home and I start talking to my girlfriend who you know had been cheating on me. And, um, I think she knew that I was different. She knew that like, there was like a, a sense of inner strength that was taking place. And I, um, uh, basically in a very calm way, I was like, I want to like be able to work things out in a healthy way. And I just want us to be healthy at this time. And I don't know what that looks like at this point, but I don't want to, um, continue the way that we were before. And, um, uh, what ended up happening was it was actually through that relationship of me starting to see the signs of like, Hey, I think I'm being um, emotionally abused. And I don't think that maybe I'm giving her too much grace, but I don't think you'd ever give someone too much grace. Um, I think that maybe she, um, she genuinely didn't want to, but she couldn't help herself partly because of her upbringing, partly because of, um, she just didn't know how else to, to treat me, you know? And so, um, I don't think it's her fault in like that kind of sense, but it is her responsibility. Just not, she's not like this evil manipulating kind of person. You know what I mean? Um, so what happened was I, uh, was getting counseling at the same time. I'm trying to patch my relationship. And as I'm getting counseling, I'm starting to pick up on the signs like, Oh, like I'm, I think I'm in a really toxic relationship. <laughs> and as I'm starting to understand those things, I tried to be Superman and tried to solve it. But somewhere along the way, about two months later, um, so I, my suicide attempt was in, um, June of 20, um, of 2019. Yeah. And then, so in August of 2019, I think God just kind of like made it really plain. Like, you know, Junior, like you don't need her for your happiness or your peace. And although you might want to patch this relationship, like that's not what you need right now. And when it was so plain like that made plain to me. I don't know what happened, but it like, it started to free me. Like, you know what? Like my value and my sense of like God's love for me and the joy that I have in him, it really doesn't have much to do with her at all and, or this relationship, you know? And so, um, as I, as I tried to patch things with her, it didn't work. Things kept getting worse between us. And as they kept getting worse, I remember one time I just calmly said to her, this is like in a time where um, we were we were alone. And I just said to her like, hey, right now we have a really toxic relationship, but I don't think that this is anything that we can't work through. 
And she responded really negatively to that and just kind of like, but she doesn't know why she did. She just like really, it just bothered her a lot. And that was the tell for me, like, man, like, I don't think it's good for her or for me to remain in this relationship yeah. anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, it's like when you're he, when you're on this healing journey, uh, mental, spiritual, all of these things and people in your life who are not growing or are toxic or just not the people God has for you in that season. Yeah. Yeah. He's going to div- like separate it and divide it because he's trying to like refine you and, yeah. and heal you. And I think something so beautiful about what you're sharing is in when you hit rock bottom in the throes of some of the darkest spaces in your life, the, the, your understanding and closeness to the Lord must be so, must have been so profound in a way that maybe people who haven't been to that dark space can experience of like, like you're saying, understanding your identity, where your values rooted, who you are, who you want in your life, who is God, like all of these fundamental questions I think we can all wrestle with. How did that hard space teach you these lessons? And do you feel like, like, where are you at with the Lord now? I guess, like, what, how has that sort yeah. of shaped your intimacy with Him through that brokenness? Yeah. Um, man. So, like, God was showing me in a really, in a painful way, mind you, but in a really um, undeniable and experiential kind of way. Um, like, I, I needed to depend on Him and mm. Him alone and yeah. uh, for everything. Like for everything, for your joy, for your peace, for your pleasure, for your happiness, um, for your value, like everything. I needed to depend on it, on him for it. And um, I said it was painful because that required me to let go of the things that I wanted to be in that picture, you know. Um, but I was falling in really safe hands. I was falling in hands that, you know, like were going to take care of me and like God was looking out for me, you know. And yeah. so I actually remember very vividly, um, very vividly that the hardest part of letting her go was I felt like I was going to lose her, not for, not romantically, but that she wouldn't get any better without me. I felt like I was the only person who could understand what she was going through and also help her and walk it, walk through with it with her. So um, part of letting go was me realizing like, no, like this is better for her too. Like she can't get healthy with you, you know? And um, so me seeing that, not just for myself, but seeing it with her, like she just needed to do what I was doing. Like she needed to find that time and that place to really just be with God and just depend on him, you know? Like yeah. that's what she needs. She didn't need me. Yeah. 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 That's so powerful, Junior. Um, I, I do want to talk a little bit about the scriptures and suicide. Like I I was sort of looking into particularly the story of Elijah. I don't know if you ever, um, yes, yeah. Spend some time with this, this uh, particular guy in the Bible who honestly experienced a lot of miraculous things from the Lord, you know, the Lord providing food for him or like bringing, you know, when he was um, kind of in a showdown with the Baal gods and who's going to bring yeah. fire, who's not like he just experienced a lot of things and then was able to destroy a lot of the Baal prophets and stuff, had a lot of like what maybe we'd call like spiritual highs. And like the Lord was just, you know, 
answering his prayers left and right. Like he's like, bring rain, don't bring rain, you know, all of these things. <laughs> and like, it, it was such a, I, I was reading about this guy. I was like, man, he is like crushing it in, in, in the scriptures. And then you get to first Kings 19 and you, he yeah. says this prayer. He says, he sat down. This is after he had just experienced all these miraculous things. With the yeah. Lord. Literally the chapter right after, right after yeah. he's, he's on yeah. the, all these highs and he gets to this point where Jezebel, so Ahab's wife, is like, I'm coming for you. I'm coming for your head. You killed all my prophets. You're next. And that threat. So he he says he sat down under a solitary broom tree and mm-hmm. prayed that he might die. And he says, I have had enough, Lord. He said, take my life, for I am no better than my ancestors who have already died. And then he falls asleep. And when I read that, I was like, suicide's in the Bible. like. because I think, I don't know if you felt like this, you experiencing all these things you experienced growing up. I never heard any talk of suicide, depression, you know, in a sermon, in, in a, in a youth talk. And I think it felt so disconnected of, oh, there must be something wrong with you then if you want to kill yourself because this is it, but it's in the Bible. Like he literally asked God to take his life and he got to such a depressive state that I was like, whoa, like this, yeah. is, this has been around for a long time. And this struggle has been around for a long time. Um, but yeah, I just kind of wanted to get your thoughts on like, what does the scriptures have to say about suicide? And even just hearing David's prayers, like we're talking about, I'm pretty sure he got to some of those low places as well. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. What do you think scripture has to say about this? Topic? Yeah. So I actually want to talk a little bit about Elijah too. Um, we talked about how it was like right after this huge, um, like the battle at Mount, Mount Carmel, right? Between um, the false gods and uh, the God of Israel. And what had happened was um, because Ahab told Jezebel, hey, this is what he just did. He just killed all of our prophets and he made a mockery of us. Um, you would think that Elijah would be like, okay, God, you just did all these things. So what's Jezebel going to do to me? But for some reason, he's anxious and he's terrified to yeah. the point where he doesn't want to live anymore. Yeah. And um, I, and I'm reading into the text. I'm going to admit it right now. Okay. But I don't think it was because he was scared. Like he might've been scared, but I think he was just tired. I mean, Elijah lived an extremely lonely life, really lonely. The entire nation of Israel that worships other gods hates his guts. Right, and, and he's a prophet to a people who are really hard of hearing, you know. And not only is he lonely, he just did this huge thing. People are still trying to kill him, right? They're still trying to go after him. And I think there's this feeling of he doesn't want to live this life anymore. This life where he's a he's a one man against the whole world. He's God's sole prophet to a people who won't listen to him. And he's constantly looking out for his back as someone's trying to kill him, you know? And so him saying, like, I'm I've had enough, like I'm just done, you know. Um, I think it was a really depressing place. Not so much an anxious, fearful place, but a really depressing place to be, you know? And um, uh, yeah. Yeah, I think reading about those real mental states in the Bible too just makes the scriptures come alive a little bit more of like, yeah, these are like People have been experiencing these struggles for such a long time. Um, 
but yeah, I guess I also kind of wanted to ask you a question of, you know, in, in those dark spaces that you were talking about and sharing about and hitting rock bottom and stuff, where did you feel like God was in all of that? Because sometimes I feel like when you, like maybe how Elijah might've been like, I'm just tired. I'm done. Just, just end this. And one of the things that I also wanted to get your thoughts on is this idea of peace. So even listening to your story, hearing a lot of the internal struggle and the anxiety and the lack of peace of how, you know, Jesus talks about coming to give life giving peace but then it's almost like suicide is like this opposite of like death giving peace of like, I want to find peace and escape from yeah. this pain through death. Wow. And Jesus comes to give it through life. Yeah. Wow. And that was something I feel like the Lord was telling me while I was thinking through this stuff. But where do you feel like God was in those moments of no peace and in, in anxiety? And maybe you felt exactly like Elijah was sitting under that tree. Yeah. Yeah. So I had to, uh, I, I'm just going to be brutally honest, right? In some of my darkest moments, I felt God felt nowhere, just absent. You know, when you're in your darkest moment and you're in that headspace, it almost seems like it's too dark even for God to be there, right? That's what it seems like. And um, God would only talk to you if you were out in the light kind of feeling. But um, in hindsight, I look back and I realize that it's not so much that God wasn't there or that he wasn't speaking. Um, it's that there were so many different things that I was listening to, you know, like um, his voice was always there, mm. but there's too many distractions, too many things that I, I, I myself needed lots of help to just clear out and just like listen to him, you know? So like, um, I'm, I'm not trying to be, what's the word? Like, like overly religious when I say this, but like realistically, like, and if I had been in the Psalms during those times, I would have had a so much more like a stronger inner person, you know? Yeah. And I, I don't just mean like reading them to read them like as a religious thing. I'm talking about like genuinely confiding in them. Like, I don't know anyone who is going through something and, um, reads the Psalms and says like, this isn't helping me, you know, like genuinely. I think that when they read the Psalms and they're going through things, even if it might, they might not feel like it's not helping them. They know that it's doing something for them and in them, it's giving them some kind of hope and um, they might be resistant to it or they might not see it, but it's like a seed that's being planted in them and that those verses are going to take root and in a different time, a different day, you know? Um, and so I think people who are suffering be- because they suffer so much, many times the only thing that they want is relief from the pain. But um, God, when he's at work in the midst of suffering, relief from pain isn't always the, the, the number one thing that he wants to do. You know, wow. yeah. sometimes he wants to comfort you in the midst of your pain. Yes. And that was so hard for oh. me to learn. It's a painful lesson, but you realize why though, right? So I'm sorry, I'm just going to go off track a little bit, right? No, please, so please. Like, so, uh, so bringing up more scriptures, my favorite passage in the entire Bible is John 11, okay? 
entire Bible, John 11, read it tonight if you have time. It's Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, right? Mm. We've heard the story before many, many right. times. Right. And for people like me who are always looking for the reason for something, this passage is for you, okay? So um, Jesus' cousin Lazarus is sick and he's going to die soon. And so his sisters send for somebody to tell Jesus to come and visit him and heal him, right? And uh, Jesus purposefully doesn't show up. And the reason he says that he gives to his disciples, so not to Lazarus and his family, but to his disciples is because I'm going to do something else. And he waits a couple days, his cousin dies, and then he knows his cousin dies. So he says, okay, now let's go and visit him. And those of us who are reading, we think that the message is really plain and simple, like, oh, because Jesus is going to raise him from the dead, right? It's so obvious, like he purposely waited to raise Lazarus from the dead. But then when you really think about that statement, especially as a sufferer, that seems so cruel. Like, Jesus, you let my brother die on purpose when you could have prevented it from happening. Like, you could have prevented not only his suffering, but my suffering from happening. And it wasn't even necessary because you're going to raise him back from the dead anyway. Like, it seems so cruel, right? But let me let me get into the text more, okay? So then what happens is um, his sister actually approaches Jesus and says, Jesus, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. But even now, whatever you ask for, God's going to give to you. So she's even hinting, like, I know that even now you could still do something. Jesus' response to her doesn't deny what she said. He doesn't say, like, you're wrong. Like, you know, like, it's almost like Jesus acknowledges, like, yeah, if I was here, I would have healed him, you know? But he doesn't even address what she says. She just says to him, or he says to her, rather, um, your brother's going to live again. And so Martha's response is, oh, yeah, I know. I know he's going to live again. I know that in the end, God's going to raise everybody up on the last day, right? And um, Jesus says, essentially, no, Martha, you don't get it. Like. I am the resurrection and the life like resurrection doesn't take place on a day. Yeah. It takes place in a person in me. And so um, what happens is afterwards, she's like, Oh yeah. Amen. Like you're right. Okay. But then we get this weird in between sequence between him talking to Martha and then raising Lazarus from dead. And that in between sequence is the most troublesome as a sufferer because Jesus goes and he sees people crying and he has compassion for them. And then he even says that he weeps with them, right? John eleven thirty five. 35, he wept. So as a sufferer, it's like when you listen to that passage or when you read it, you're like, what? Like you planned this to happen. Why are you crying? Like if you let Lazarus die, why would you cry? If it was your plan to raise him from the dead, why would you cry about it? Like your tears are either fake or two, because you're trying to manipulate people to think that you care, but you really don't because you made it happen. And then it dawned on me reading this as a sufferer that maybe the reason why Jesus waited for Lazarus to die wasn't just so he could raise him from the dead, but was so that he could cry with us that he died. 
So the climax of the passage is not to raise Lazarus from the dead. Maybe the climax is that he would cry with us. Junior, that reminds me of a time that we were talking one time a few years ago. And I was sharing something like hard I was going through, I think, or uh, some challenge. And you had said, you were sort of talking about this. You were saying how Jesus is our friend and he feels with us. So when you're in the midst of something and you feel broken, he cares about that hurt emotion and he, he's not some, so yeah, like you're saying he's stepping, he steps into those hard spaces with us, feels with us, has compassion for us and with us. And it, it creates this more relational aspect with him versus him being this distant God that just allowing all these horrible things to happen and whatever. So that he can, so that he can like get rid of it later. Right. 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 Yeah. That's such a beautiful point that you're making is he's with us. He's with us in the dark night of the soul, as some theologians say. And in when we hit those walls, when we hit rock bottom, reading that passage going forward, I'm going to be reminded that he's with us. Like he feels with us in our pain and he is capable of restoring us more than we could even fathom or imagine this side of heaven or the other side. And I think clinging to that hope um, is so powerful. So I think that's an amazing point to bring out of a scripture that people might have heard so many times. Yeah. Um, to think of Jesus that way as a, someone who feels with us and cares. Like yeah. those are like he wept. It wasn't like oh he had a single tear. Tear. Like, he yeah. Wept. <laughs> he wept, wept over yeah. over over death and like his heaviness over death. Like like Jesus. His heart for us is life and peace and to flourish and, and to be in relationship with him. And he mourns the sin and the brokenness, death and disease in this world so deeply. Yeah. And that's such a good reminder. And I, I would love to sort of wrap up our conversation just with you sort of sharing. What would your parting words be to the person who's listening to this and is feels like they've hit rock bottom? They don't know where else to go, what to do. They might even be thinking about taking their own life right today. They've planned it out. What would you say to this person? Yeah. um, So aside from things that you probably hear already, right? Like, hey, don't kill yourself and it gets better. Um, I want to offer you something different. Um, There are times where it's not going to get better. And many times it's because what you think of what better is, isn't what God thinks better is. Sometimes what better is, is something that doesn't relieve your pain right away. But then later on, you're like, this was so much better than just relieving me of my pain. You know, like, a lot of times we're like Martha and we're just like, God, like, why didn't you stop this from happening? But then we realized like, it was so much better to have Jesus cry with me than to have Jesus just make it not and never happen. It was so much better for Jesus to comfort me than it was for him to have, like to never experience what it was like to have him there when I was going through something. So for you or for anyone who's listening, like, whatever you're going through just know that like 
you might be looking for one thing, but God's doing something so much bigger than what you can understand. And your hope isn't going to be holding out for some crazy sign or miracle, but your hope is in the person who knows what you're going through and he's working it out for you. So you can trust him for that. Thank you, Junior. Um, man, I am so grateful that you're here. <laughs> and Thanks, Rhoda. <laughs> you sharing this, this story and how God is using you for his glory, for your good and his glory and your story for, for impacting so many people. Like, I, I don't know, I even just hearing your story, I'm like, God, thank you that Junior is still here. Like what a light you are through through um, just who you are, like who God is, has made you to be. And um, yeah, I, I just hope everybody listening, whatever state that you're in, would just be encouraged and cling to this hope that we that Junior was just sharing about. Um, and that I'm going to put a link in the description for the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline because you need to talk to somebody. You need somebody to be speaking this life into you and to, to be with you. So please, please, please contact that line. Talk to people in your life. We are not meant to walk this life alone. You are not a burden to anybody. You are a blessing. So please walk away from this episode feeling that. And I pray for everyone listening, that they would believe that. Um, Junior, it's honestly been such an awesome time with you. Um, thank you again for just sharing your heart and your story. I know it's going to impact so many people and just be so powerful. So thank you guys so much for joining me on navigating this really hard journey through our 20s. And remember that even in the hard spaces, His grace abounds. I'll see you next yeah. Bye.